0: Thanks for listening to Axis Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We uh, welcome in today a poet, David Lee. We'll talk about his latest collection, Rusty Barbed Wire. Born in West Texas, David Lee is the author of numerous poetry collections. Uh, Lee has been a boxer, pig farmer, seminary student, cotton mill worker, the only white baseball player for a Negro League team. And he received a PhD in literature with a concentration in the poetry of John Milton from University of Utah. Um, He uh, taught for many years at Southern Utah uh, University and he's received grants from the National Endowment for the Arts, National Endowment for the Humanities. He won the Mountains and Plains Booksellers Award in Poetry, Western States Book Poetry Award in Poetry as well. He was the first Poet Laureate of uh, Utah. Uh, David Lee, pleasure to welcome you into the program. Thank you.
1: Delighted to be here,
0: Tom Williams. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Are Are you in Texas at this point? No, we live in Seaside, Oregon now. You live in Oregon now? Yeah,
1: yeah, we tried to live in Texas, but my wife's allergies uh, and uh, Texas cedar and live oak drove us out of there. So we needed to get into a place where we didn't have allergens and we've got the Pacific breeze. So we're here where there's clean air. Oh,
0: it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Uh, So uh, parts of your biography I've never you know, never been able to talk to you about, so this is an opportunity for me. Uh, so I grew up in West Texas, or at least born in West Texas. Um, yeah, I, I, I failed to grow up, yeah. but that's where I was reared, yes. <laughs> that's where you were reared. Uh, how did you—became uh, an expert on Milton, you got into literature. Uh, what, uh, what was that journey like? <laughs> I,
1: I don't think anyone has ever called me an expert on Milton. I just fell in love with John Milton. Uh, I, I, I've i got a very checkered past when it comes to education. I really didn't much want to go to college. I sort of enjoyed working at the time, but I had parents who were insistent. I spent my first three years in college in seminary, and uh, when I transferred to Colorado State, they looked at my transcript and said, what in the world is this? Uh, What what should we declare your major? And I said, well, since I've done so poorly, I should major in mediocrity uh, or Church of Christ. uh, Take your pick. And uh, uh, I I graduated. They they helped me graduate because I was getting drafted, and I wanted to have a a, a BA behind me so I could maybe have a good choice of what to do in the military. Uh, And... uh, When it came time to put down uh, my graduation papers at Colorado State University, it had a blank for major and the only thing that I had many hours in were speech and English because all of that homiletics transferred right into there, so in my handwriting I put an SP and then an ENG. And I never did see my graduation certificate until I was applying for graduate school. Uh, and it says that my uh, major in college is agricultural engineering the s <laughs> p looked like an a g anyway uh i i fell in love with reading and writing while I was in the army. actually, I always loved reading i I had never thought that much about writing uh and i came got out uh, got out of the army with the uh the education program that the army had at the time that gave me 5 or something years of of uh, additional education and i just on a wild lark started applying around and ended up getting accepted into the masters program both at utah state and at idaho state uh for reasons unknown to me at this moment i chose idaho state Uh, Got an M.A. there uh, in one year, uh, did it all wrong, Uh, did it too fast, but had a teacher there, Larry Rice, and his brother, big brother, Moyle Q. Rice, used to be a massive teacher at Utah State, so it was sort of in the family. He was my Milton teacher, and I fell in love with the writing of John Milton and then uh, graduated went to the University of Utah because by then I had met Jan, and that was the closest to Idaho State because she hadn't finished her degree. And uh, I found out nobody was minding the till, and especially for veterans. And I did my Ph.D. in one year uh, at the University of Utah, uh, did all of the coursework for it anyway and uh I just declared Milton as one of my major figures uh and so that's the, pretty much the Milton story I just love paradise
0: lost well, what is it about Milton that you uh, fell in love with his mind uh-huh.
1: uh, the, the fact uh, you know I'm, I'm I'm stunned I remain stunned at the fact that he uh A, set out to write the most perfect epic ever written. When you read the first 26 lines of book one, he says, this is no middle flight over the Aeonian Mount. When you read this, and it'll be a one-on-one between Homer and Virgil and me, Milton says, and I'm going to be excellent in all aspects, and at the end of it, you either have to adjudicate this the finest epic ever written or call it a total failure. And I, I I found it to be the finest. And the thing that stunned me about Milton was, he was stone blind when he wrote the poem. Mm. He he had read a lot as a youth, probably read his eyes out. Uh, who knows what was wrong with him? But he he did the poem entirely in his mind and dictated it. Published it in 1667 in a ten-volume uh, poem. And then when he was getting ready to die in 1674, he realized he had done it all wrong. Epics should be in 12 books. And so from memory, he re the poem, uh, revised and amended it in spots, and divided it into 12 books. And I think that's one of the supreme intellectual occurrences in the history of literature. Uh, so I'm, I'm just... Uh, I'm fascinated by Milton and his mind, and of course, I had that first three years of seminary. When you read a Milton biography, you always come up with this sentence, Milton, comma, of course, comma, had the Bible by heart at age, and they'll always put either 12 or 14. I don't know why they picked those numbers, but he had that kind of capacious mind and that kind of memory, and uh I was was just taken by him still am and 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 among other things finding to be just a fascinating and wonderful writer and at this stage in life I I find his many people say he was a person who lived an entire life without laughing and they must not have read him carefully because he has got some marvelous comic figures starting with his Satan in Paradise Lost and especially Paradise Regained and I just I just find that humor very, very wonderful and uh, uh, and impressive. Now that's more than you ever wanted to know, but you asked the question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Uh, I do want to continue with the poetry and and of course your poetry and have you read some poems uh, from from Rusty Barbed Wire. Um, I have to ask this: so you, you, it's included in your bio here. The only white baseball player for a Negro League team. Understand you were a knuckleballer.
1: Well, it, it, it was a Texas Negro League team. I'm mm-hmm. sure there were other white players on Negro teams. But, yes, I was a pitcher. I threw the knuckleball. I, uh, I learned it on television watching Hoyt Wilhelm, who threw a – no-hitter back in 1956 or 7, and I think I had the flu or something and stayed home and watched a ball game. Anyway, he said, most people can either throw it the first pitch or they'll never be able to, and he showed how he held it, and I went out and I threw it on the first pitch. And so, uh, because I could throw it, I guess I was sort of special, but the, the the Negro Leagues. The, I I was I've always been the most fortunate and lucky human being who ever lived. I had two mothers growing up. I had my birth mother, but I also had Miss Leela who was a black woman, and she she, to be honest, liked me far more than my own mother did. Uh, she took care of me. But one day, uh, uh, the the two Anderson boys on the black on the on the Blue Stars team. Uh, both got badly injured in work accidents and they had a a doubleheader that weekend and they needed a pitcher, a a relief pitcher and Leela volunteered me and, and she told me you need to go down, Mr. Dave. Get you get your cleats and go on down by the to the ball field by the airport because they're going to be working you out. And I knew who was playing down there, and I knew I didn't belong on that team. And I said, Oh, I'm 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 afraid I'm not going to be able to do that, Leila. Miss Leila, I always called her, and she said, well, then, Mr. Dave, I am so sorry. I'm just not going to be able to do any supper tonight or, and I said, all right, when? And she said, go right now. And I went down, and from the get-go, I was basically accepted on that team, and it was just one of the most, Joyous periods in 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 my life. I'm I'm not a good athlete. I was not really. I'm. I realize now I'm one of those people who can honestly say at this age I never was the man I used to be. I enjoyed playing with those people, uh, and it was a highlight in my life. And uh, I, I I can tell stories about it. But mostly that's how it happened.
0: Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Thanks for telling that that story. Uh, so uh, you got your PhD. And you're looking around. I guess. Uh, I guess the plan is then you'd be a professor of uh, literature somewhere. Ended up at Southern Utah University. Um, yeah, that was that was pretty much an accident. I, I guess it was, it was a
1: fortuitous accident. Uh, Everybody who goes through a Ph.D. program comes out the golden boy or the golden girl. Everybody gets at the end the rah-rah, you know, with all of the cliches, keep your nose to the grindstone and your shoulder to the wheel and work hard. And someday you can be at Harvard if that's what you want to do and that's what i thought i wanted to do but i needed to get that first job as, as i said i did it wrong i when my son went to graduate school i told him if you do it the way i did i will kick your rear all the way to shinola and back you take some time and learn i rushed on mine because i had the gi bill and uh, i just felt like i needed to be in a hurry and i could have learned so much more if i'd done it but I did finish all of my work, uh the classroom work in a year and I was set to, to go out and, and, you know, just spend a year studying, do my prelims, written and orals, and then spend a year writing my dissertation, which at that time I thought would be on John Milton. Uh, And I looked around, and that little college down there, which was then Southern Utah State College, and they had just gone from junior college to four-year status, and they had an opening. They had two openings, a a permanent one and a one-year and I wanted one of the two because Jan could finish her degree at Idaho State, and then we could get married and we could go down there together for our first year of marriage, and uh, I could get some of that coveted Golden Rule experience, uh, stay a year or two, and then you know move onward and upward. And that was the original plan. But then I went down there and... Fell in love with the school, fell in love with the area. My heavens, you can't ask for a more beautiful place to live that part of a life. And uh, and I had some absolutely wonderful people to work with down there who, for, for reasons known to the gods, took a shine to me and sort of mentored me along and helped me cover up the areas where I was deficient and... Uh, I, be, I became the person, for better or worse, who I am today, and I ended up staying. I never, ever had it in the back of my mind that I would stay there for an entire career, but by golly, I did. <laughs> so there it is. That's the story.
0: How do you navigate the very interesting, um, you know, uh, uh, travel, uh, journey from, you know, West Texas to southern Utah, you know, culturally, uh, the, the, the landscape, But you say it did, uh, those years there formed you.
1: Well, uh, uh, after I graduated from high school, my parents left West Texas, and they moved to Durango, Colorado. They They bought a little fish farm. And in high school, I had been very active in the Future Farmers of America, the FFA, and my senior year, I, w- I was actually the Lone Star Farmer of Texas. I-, I got my Lone Star Farmer degree and all of that. And I think they got that fish farm thinking that would be something I could probably be good at and stay in the family and work and be in an agricultural area. And and Durango, Colorado became the locus. Uh, and then I ended up uh, going to Colorado State University for my degree because I had in-state tuition from there. And then after the Army, I I thought I wanted to go back to Fort Lewis College, uh, uh, get a graduate degree, go back there and teach in Durango, and and a a job opening just didn't turn up. One of the reasons I was interested in Cedar City is my dad was born and reared in Panguitch, Utah. And I had a whole side of my family I really did not even know down in southern Utah, and I wanted to go down there and find out, you know, from that side of the issue, who I am and what what heredity that I have from that area. So that was the draw, but just the fact that the job was open in the first place, but that was the draw. And as far as going to graduate school in Idaho and Utah, again, I, I – from durango colorado i had fallen in love with the rocky mountain west and I, I really wanted to spend more time there and especially after going through the army i wanted to go back to a place where i felt good and comfortable in and and try to regather myself and start a life so that's probably the best i can say as to how that worked out it's all fortuitous the gods take care of childrens and idiots, and I've always had double coverage, so they they were watching out for me. <laughs>
0: that's that's great. Um, you're you're known uh, as a pig farmer, and you've written a lot of poems yeah. on on pigs. Did, did you always? You said you were in the FFA. Did you always raise uh, pigs? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I, I started,
1: I got my first pig uh, when I was 14 years old, and it was an immediate love affair. I've, I've always had a love affair. When Jan and I moved to southern Utah, we we uh, I had bought a 10-by-50-foot trailer while I was in graduate school. A, a colleague of mine, a friend of mine's dad uh, opened a trailer sales, and he took one in on a used, and I got a really good buy on it, and we drug it down there. But halfway through either the first or the second year of teaching, a 10 acre piece of land came open outside town that I could actually afford, and it had alfalfa and water. And so we moved our trailer out there. And Jen knew I love pigs, and she had openly said, I won't, if you get pigs, I'm not going to have anything to do with them because they're nasty and they're dirty and all of that. And I got two pigs, and. Uh, Uh, She was, for the most part, true to her word. She wouldn't have anything to do with them. But one day, uh, the wind was blowing awfully hard, which it does in southern Utah. And I left school a little bit early to go out because, you know, a trailer house up on blocks can sort of wiggle and wobble, and you worry about it going over, and I was worried about how she might be doing. I got out there, and I couldn't find Jan. She wasn't inside there, and I looked all over, and finally I went out to the little pig pen where the two little girls were, and Jan was back inside their shed with them in her lap, and they were cuddling each other. And that became her love affair with them, and of course, when it came time that we needed to butcher them or sell them, she bawled for three days mm-hmm. until I finally said, "Well, Jan, what if I go to john sims and and she said, "Yes, she knew what I had in mind anyway, long story shortened eighteen months later, we had about hundred and four head of pigs mm-hmm. because pigs are highly prolific and uh and that, that's 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 where the pig farm came in. I formed a partnership with a fellow from Yazoo City, Mississippi, uh, 20 years older than me, fifth grade education, one of the greatest storytellers uh, I've ever known in my life. And his name was John Sims, and he became my John voice in those poems that became the pig poems. And uh, my first three books pretty much uh, actually Four of my first five books pretty much concerned themselves with pig farming, and I got that nickname and reputation as the pig poet. They did a – it's a long time ago now, but they did a film, a PBS film on me called The Pig Poet. And I might as well, at that time, have just got a tattoo on my left arm of a pig, uh, because I was stuck with that moniker moniker for the rest of my life. Uh, And that's how it happened.
0: Mm. Uh, Tell me about that. Uh, You're known for the the, the vernacular that you you adopt in in the poems. Uh, Tell me how that developed.
1: Well, uh, uh, first of all, as a poet, I, I have to say this. I I never took a class in creative writing, so I'm pretty much self-taught from there. And a lot of people who do have good educations in creative writing say, "Yeah, it shows that you never never had a class," and and that's fine with me. I'm all with that. I I I was. We'll go back to your opening remarks, Milton. Milton was a great storyteller. He knew how to take material and create. Wonderful stories out of them, using a common and well known material, and still achieve different ends with it and I guess in in one sense, he might be a bit of a role model that way i uh when uh, when 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 you go into pig farming you don't in in many ways so much raise pigs as you start to raise each other because pigs are very very warm and and gentle animals, and they're very, very intelligent. They rank uh, somewhere around seventh or eighth on the scale of animal intelligence, which I usually interrupt myself at that point and say, that's two notches above sophomores. <laughs> but they're bright animals. They do like people very much. They have the same kind of diet that we do. We just have a lot in common. Uh and so I, I guess just sort of a love affair develops there, and out of any love affair, stories will come. And so I started listening to the stories that were going in, in and out of my head, and and actually most of my writing is sort of subconscious. I I don't so much write the poems as they are given to me, and I listen to them as the voices tell them, and then I write them down. Uh, and and one of the stories I tell, it's a poem that I can't read over the air for your audience because it's got some language that wouldn't be uh, appropriate. But uh, there was an incident one night when my friend John, my friend partner John, called and said, I need you to come help me, and I need you to bring Jan. I've got a little pig, and she's in trouble, and we may need Jan with her hands. And, and the pig was trying to birth and she was too small. She she was bred too young, and so we spent the night trying to save the pig, save the little pig, uh, uh, and and finally went home like at two or three or something in the morning. And uh, I had to study for my class, and it was ironically a Milton class I was studying for, for but I. Uh, had all of my notes uh, in front of me and a, and a cup of coffee to try to keep me awake, and I was studying, and the next thing I know, the sun's coming up. I am holding in my hands a stone-cold cup of coffee with a spider floating in it, and I look down below that, and on the, the yellow notepad that I was trying to make notes for my Milton class is a completely finished poem, titled For Jan With Love, based on what happened the preceding night, I have no recollection whatsoever of writing a single word. Mm. It happened.
0: Wow, amazing, amazing.
1: And that, that basically was the beginning of these poems that I would write. I would think about them, I would experience them, I would try to form some sort of a narrative out of them, and then I would sleep on them and... In sleeping, the the voice would come to me and help me shape that poem, and often the writing of the poem was almost auto writing. It took no effort at all. The pencil would move itself, and then later, when we moved farther away. From uh, the, the university where I taught, I, I had, uh, uh, when we lived in Paraguna, I had about 40 minutes each way, going and coming, to be completely alone in the car, and at that time, I had a very, very good memory. And I would think my way through all of these poems while I was driving, dream them at night, and then think them during the day. When we moved down to Cedar City, or down to St. George, I had about an hour and 15 minutes each way, but I used the same process. I would think the stories, I would think the poems, I would dream on them, and I would write them in my mind while driving. And I could usually hold about 14 poems at a time in my head, And I was also, I'd been elevated into the, I was a member of the enemy camp. I was an administrator, Mm. and I was on an 11-month contract. The only month I had off in the year was August. So in August, I would go to my cabin, uh, wherever, whatever that cabin was at the time, could have just been, you know, at one time it was just a camper uh, on the back of a pickup, but I would go somewhere where I could be alone alone and I would just for one month sit and for the first time hold a pencil in my hand and write the poems out, and then go through the process of revising, correcting, and whatnot. And that's how I wrote my early books. Hmm. So that's how it happened, and the the stories were just things that sort of amalgamated and shaped themselves inside my subconscious mind more than conscious, and it all came through dreams.
0: Oh uh, yeah. That makes
1: a Yes, again, but yes,
0: that's... definitely does. Thank you. That's uh, appreciate that. Uh, we're, we're going to head to a toward a break here. Before we do, I wonder if, if we could have you read a short poem from from the collection Rusty Barbwire. Wire. Uh, do you have your your book with you? I've got it right in my oh, hand. Okay. I'm I'm thinking uh, hopefully the pages match up. It's page 6 yep. uh, 16 on, on the, in the Kindle version. Uh, the poem called Tuesday Morning Driving to the Auction in Salina.
1: That's ironic. That's one of the poems that my wife likes me to read when we go out. So you're on the same wavelength oh, as, right. my, as, as my wife. You bet. Tuesday morning, driving to the auction in Salida. Sometimes, says John, it's so pretty here. I can't stand it. I'm on that haste walker. It's green alfalfa all in front. And then them red Utah hills behind climb up to the mountains, just like they're pasted on, blue. But then, as times I'm alone, I listen past it all. I hear Mississippi, like a big muscle holding its blood, and the slosh on them rotten piles down behind the house at night. I can almost see that moon trying to push up the sky reflected off the water. And the clouds fall apart like pieces of paint coming off old walls in the bedroom. It's almost the taste of fog floating down the river behind the cold night wind. You know what I mean? And John drove in silence, thinking me asleep. As I stared out toward the shrouded river, a thousand miles distant, listened to the sliding brown water move over the etched memory of a red and white bobber dancing on the ripples of my mind.
0: Mm. Beautiful. That's Tuesday morning. Driving to the auction in Salina. Uh, the poet is uh, David Lee. We have him for the hour here, and the latest collection is called Rusty Barbed Wire, and that's out and available now. We'll have more following this brief break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're pleased to have a poet, David Lee. On the program today, and uh, we're talking about his, uh, among other things, latest collection, Rusty Barbed Wire, that is out and available now. Uh, David Lee was the first poet laureate of uh, Utah, taught for many years at Southern Utah uh, University. Um, so, David Lee, you recently came to USU. I'm sorry, I missed that event, um, and uh, I was just reading the, you know, the promotional announcement for the event. Um, David Lee will be uh, reading his work accompanied by a jazz band. Is that, how does that go? <laughs>
1: well, that was interesting. That that was Helicon West. Uh, and uh, the the jazz band was mostly there for warm-up and for entertainment or in-between, or they would accompany the poems if you want. Uh, they They had me read for... Oh, I think they said 30 to 40 minutes, I think I ended up doing 36, uh, Yeah, that's the way I'm pretty much uh, middle of the road on everything. And uh, I didn't use the jazz band uh, at all, that was the Ken Brewer Festival, and Ken Brewer was the second poet laureate of Utah, and he was very much my adopted brother, he was my son's godfather, I mean we were that close. And so I took the opportunity to uh introduce Ken Brewer to to the audience. I read uh, half of the reading were my poems and half of the reading were his and I can do a fairly decent imitation of Ken Brewer. Uh and so I I gave, I gave him 2 for 1 for the price of 1 and uh it was I had just a grand time there that night. Uh it was a it was a terrific audience and uh uh and got to resurrect Ken and felt like he knew he knew he was there, and it was just terrific. So, yeah, that was fun. And then the next day we did a panel discussion with uh, two artists who were instructors in the physical arts on uh, the Utah State campus, and that was just a, a hoot and a holler, too. It was a, it was a great experience, a great time being there. I like coming to Utah State. It's like coming home. My son went there; he got his master's degree there. So, we've got we've got our roots.
0: Um, you have uh, reading a couple of interviews you gave. It, some poems you say that you, I guess, as you're writing them, or or an influence is is a piece of music. You mentioned a poem that was you had in mind uh, Beethoven's Ninth. Another one, Beethoven's Fifth, uh, yep. for example. Yep. Yep.
1: Uh, as, as a matter of fact, uh, that's interesting that you're asking. You're going in that tangent because the book that I'm working on now, my next book, uh, we, we're, we're getting ready to leave for Spain for the winter, and I'm going to take this book with me. Uh, it's it's ironclad. Tentative title is the canonical hours, the hours of meditation or prayer during the day. But what I've done is taken. Uh, seven of those hours. I don't use all eight. I don't use nine o'clock because I never did any meditation at nine. That was my first class always, and so that was work. But I I look at each of the canonical hours through jazz, through music that I like, and I, I make an interpretation there. So I, I, uh, I'm really interested in using music. I had another book called Stone, Wind, and Water, and almost every poem in that book was based on a piece of music. Uh, and, and another poem that I am used to be very well known for was Rhapsody for the Good Night. Uh, Garrison Keillor read a section of that to welcome in, quote, quote, the new millennium when we went to the year 2000, but it was a five-section poem and uh, during the entire time i wrote that poem i listened to george gershwin's rhapsody in blue my daughter was a wonderful pianist she broke the poem up into five uh, the, the piece of music into five movements and she played them she she taped the music on the wall and she would move the, her piano or clavinova around the house uh, so, so I would get sounds coming from different areas, and each of the movements in Rhapsody for the Good Night is based on one of her chosen movements and her di- dividing it into five sections. So I very, very much like working with music as a background and a motif. Yes, that's really important to me
0: like to have you read another uh, poem or two. Uh, one that I uh, that struck me is another brief poem. Uh, this is page 86. Um, Psalm written after reading Cormac McCarthy and taking a three-hour climb to the top of Pine Valley Mountain. Did,
1: or, uh,
0: Tom, did you call my wife and uh, ask her
1: what poems <laughs> she would like you to read? I, I did not. Those but I... the two poems you've gone are two that she always Uh, when when she's going to a reading with me she asks me to read either one of both of those two and actually this one uh, is a poem I wrote for her when we were getting ready to leave the state and we didn't want to leave Utah as such we just wanted to get on with a different part of our lives and this was a love poem for her and uh, it's the one that she always requests so yeah psalm written after reading Carmack McCarthy and taking a three-hour climb to the top of Pine Valley Mountain, and it has an epigraph from Soren Kierkegaard. Laughter is also a form of prayer. Right here, Lord, tether me to my shadow like a fat, spavined mule stuck sideways in tank mud. Ballin' for eternity. At midnight, when the stars slip their traces and race the moon like wild horses to their death in the darkness, let my horse song twine with the night wind. May the bray of today's laughter fall like a pitchy top branch from a tall yellow pine. Straight down, like winter sleet to the mountains, bent and trembling knees. Yeah, thanks for asking for that one.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's good to be in sync with Jan. That's wonderful. Um, <laughs> uh, you, this is, as you say, that's poignant. You're, you're about to leave uh, these, these yeah. beloved places, right? Not be able to come back as often and this is a kind of a well what we
1: farewell. did when we retired we bought the archetypal pretty good pickup and the proverbial fifth wheel trailer and we loaded it up I, I didn't want to be a person who retired and just hung around all the time and and uh to be honest i had been a workaholic for a long time we we didn't take vacations we just We just worked. As I said, I was on an 11-month contract and uh, normally came to the college six days a week uh, during that time. So we took off, and for about eight years, we traveled pretty much nonstop from Mozatlan to Fairbanks, Orlando to Port Townsend, Washington. I think Jan said we hit 42 different states during that period of time. So, yeah, yeah. just trying to focus into the whole idea of place but also Utah is a place and southern Utah down in that area is where our roots were deep and so when I say right here Lord tether me to my shadow you know I don't intend to have a, a burial you know what do you do with cremated remains they they asked Jan what they ought to plan for with that when my time came, uh, and and she said, "Well, I I just guess we do something with them." And they said, "Well, would you?" Would you like us to plan on a water burial? And she said, "Well, that might be nice, uh, but what do you have in mind?" Uh, uh, and they said, "Well, would you would you want a river, ocean?" And she said, well, "Well, why would you need that when we've got a perfectly good toilet right here in the house?" So, <laughs> but right here is just uh, where 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 we called home.
0: Mm-hmm. I wonder. Before we go to another break, I wonder if you'd read an, another poem for us. This one uh, uh, is page one seventy eight. Um, Big Bend triptych, Big Bend rather triptych.
1: My my yep this this is from the period when we tried to live in Texas uh, when we settled down in Bandera and uh, we 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 fell in love with the Bin, Big Bend Park down there. Yeah, uh, Big Bend triptych, a Texas poem, three parts. One, cottonwoods bent over the seep spring like viejos, wondering what it was the wind uncovered and who put it there. A page from an ancient myth in need of translation. Surely a miracle to be understood through the ceremony of libation. Two. Hot. Morning sweat with fervor, droplets like sin offerings evaporate into mirage puddles as believable as salvation or the serpent's memory of the garden, blistered sand, clean as a miraculous portrait of the Guadalupe Virgin woven by wind drift, patiently waits the monsoon shatter of pitchfork rain, three the delicate balance santa elena's shoulders bunched together above the quiet river a dream pathway for the waxing moon to carve the letter of el nombre de dios into sky above the darkened world as the river's nubbed teeth gnaw the slot canyon subway in the granite silt, carrying the great stone walls, grain by immaculate grain
0: to see. Thank you. That's a Big Bend triptych um, with David Lee from his collection Rusty Barbed Wire, Selected Poems. Uh, let's take another break, and uh, we'll be back with our last segment with David Lee following this brief break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have with us a poet David Lee, um, and his latest collection is out. It's called Rusty Barbed Wire. We've had him read uh, some poems, have him read another one or two before we end here. Um, David Lee, the first poet laureate of Utah, taught for many years at Southern Utah University, author of uh, many collections of uh, poetry. Uh, so David Lee, you wrote you. We've read had you read some poems, uh, you know, based in Utah. That one in Texas. W- will there be poems uh, from Oregon?
1: Yes, yeah, some, some, I, I am writing from this place now. Yes, uh, in in the new book in in the uh, the the canonical hours. I'm sure there will be some Oregon poems.
0: I imagine those. There's, there's. It's wetter weather there, a little cooler. You know, well, it's, it it's a
1: sort of a weather where you almost never see either the sun or the moon. Ah, uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's cloudy. Uh, I, I've got a good friend in New Iberia, Louisiana, who every year sends out an FMA, a full moon alert, <laughs> and mostly sends it to me because he knows what my response is going to be. Uh, Sir Possum, thank you kindly, but as you need to know, we don't have moons in Oregon. <laughs> we have to travel across the state line to be able to see a moon. So, yeah, it's it's a completely different kind of world, and it's not a bad world, mind you. We 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 obviously love it here. We've we've set down roots and stayed. Uh, it just, it was an ironic thing. This is where I happened to be when I had my big heart attack, and the doctor said, you need to quit pulling trailers and settle down and just start living a life rather than have it live you. And we thought, well, this is one of the most beautiful places we've ever been, and Jan can breathe here, so why not give it a try? And here we are. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad you found a good place. Um, something struck me um, reading a couple of interviews that, that you gave. You say, I'll just quote this, in virtually every poem, I try to sneak in something that I actually think no one will ever notice, but I know it's there. Yes. Sort of a gift to myself to rediscover sometime later to create an "aha" moment. That's 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 interesting.
1: <laughs> yes, I do. I I, I do. I, I think that's part of the. Th- we writers write for many reasons, including to entertain ourselves, and that's just one of the little things that uh, gives me. A, a nice little bit of pleasure, put, slipping something in that I know nobody's going to ever pick up. And, and you know, I'm, I'm going to tell a story based on that. I had one book. It's called Day's Work. And I wrote that in 1986. I had a sabbatical, and we ended up – I was supposed to be – I was a Bodleian scholar at Oxford, and we did not like London at all. It was just – it was almost like the Oregon weather now. We weren't ready for it then. It was cold, and it misted and rained every day, and I was used to the desert. And we were going to go home, but I had a, a, a connection to a friend, and he was waiting for the phone call. And he said, you just got to come down here uh, and, and, and live, and you can write your book here. So I, I spent the entire winter. I, I already had the poems in my mind and my head, and then I was just going to put the book together, finish it out and put it together. But what I had in mind was to make it a, quote, quote, perfectly structured book. And by that, I meant, uh, well, what I had in mind, it would go into two halves. It was one day's work, and it would divide right in the middle. And I had it down almost to the exact page where I said, that's half the job done, and the first half's the hardest. Now it'll be easy going downhill. All right, now that's the story. Now here's a reaction to it. My daughter was in the seventh grade, or uh, later was in the seventh grade. She was only in the fourth, I think, when we were, maybe even younger than that. But anyway, in the seventh grade, she had a friend. Her name was Karen Mahan. Her dad was a, an Episcopal or a Lutheran preacher, uh, which is neither here nor there. But she got interested in my poems and read some of my books. And she came up to me and said, in this book, and she had day's work, she said, did you purposely – intend for it to in the middle say we're halfway through and I said did you get that on your own and she said I counted the words and you only missed it by, I can't remember what she said. I hadn't done that, but I was somewhere around 100 words d- 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 divided. So sometimes, even though I think nobody ever will, gee, out of the mouths of babes, uh, she picked she picked that up completely, and then she went back, and she told me how she had picked up the other parts of the structuring hour by hour through the day and how I had marked them, and I was just stunned. From a seventh grader. So maybe some of, this things, some of these things I'm trying to plant inside there I don't think anybody will get are a whole lot simpler than I think they actually are. <laughs> but, yeah. yes, I do like to do that. Yeah, That's just a, that's a game.
0: I just have a couple minutes left. I want to have you read uh, one last poem. Uh, this is page 221. It's called Last Call.
1: Oh, my. Yeah. I wrote this uh, poem... For my big brother, best friend, uh, William Clefcard, who was the poet laureate of Nebraska. We used to play Ken Brewer as part of this, the Utah State poet. Uh, We would play little games like, remember when we were kids, name that tune? I can name that tune in three notes or something like that. We'd play a game. I can say uh, the funniest thing in the English language in seven words. No, I can do it in six. I can do it in five. Well, Clefcorn one night said the two saddest words in the English language. I can do oh no no, the saddest words in the English language I can do it in two. So we said, name that tune. I can do it. And he said, Last call. <laughs> well, of course that's a double entendre, but I wrote this for him, uh in in my book, Last Call for Him after He Passed. Last call. The two saddest words in the English language from a conversation with Bill Clefkorn. One. Tonight, moon glow from within, softly, like a candled egg, and softly stars diminish until incandescence washes the dark sky until midnight's light slick, its ebb and flow liquid, the candent universe rolls softly. Two. Midnight Remonstrance. There are those I wish honestly only to remember, being gone and only memory. And there are those I wish to never remember, desiring only their presence, lasting as long as my life until forever, as I cannot imagine living in a world containing only their memory. Three. And you, my friend, whom the gods call into that other alone, Wherever you wake, be it desert or forest, mountain or seaside, find tinder, dry moss and kindling, flint, strike a small fire, which, being eternity, will flicker beyond forever. Sing your bright poem. Fork. Your lightning dance. I will find you, sooner than later, wherever you wait in darkness. We will sing together, delirious and off-key. We will tell great lies to shame the heavens. We will cook with wine. I promise
0: you this." That's last. Call. And Tom,
1: you did it yeah. again. That uh-huh. would be the third poem my wife would have asked for.
0: Oh, that's well. That's that's great. <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, we are uh, out of time. That's mm-hmm. the last call from the the latest collection is Rusty Barbed Wire Selected Poems. Uh, the poet, of course, is uh, David Lee. Um, David Lee, it's uh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for spending time with us
1: pleasure was all mine, Tom. Thank you very much. Hope it's been worth your time and hello to your audience. Hope there's some friends
0: out there. Howdy,
1: y'all. <laughs>
0: Wonderful. Take care of yourselves. Thank thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it so much. Um, and what you is, we, we always do with, uh, on Wednesdays anyway, Beehive Archive.
2: It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Public health campaigns have long sparked fears of government overreach. In the mid-20th century, for example, Dentists lobby to add fluoride to Utah's water supply to support tooth health. Learn more about the decades-long public uproar after this. I'm Jody Graham, director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. In the early 20th century, trips to the dentist were expensive and painful. Dental hygiene was not as accessible as it is today, and many Utahns suffered from tooth decay. Left untreated, bacteria in the mouth can dissolve tooth enamel and cause excruciating pain, serious infection, and tooth loss. In the late 1930s, chemists discovered that adding small quantities of fluoride to drinking water was an effective tool against tooth decay. By the 1950s, the American Dental Association was promoting low levels of fluoride in drinking water as an effective measure to support widespread dental hygiene. But public health is often more complicated than mere scientific facts. Utah's politicians and concerned citizens weighed in, turning the call for fluoridated water into a campaign against the evils of socialism. Misinformation and fear about fluoridation spread quickly. Despite credible evidence, critics incorrectly associated consuming low levels of fluoride with an increased risk for cancer, heart disease, osteoporosis, and a slew of other health conditions. Fears over fluoride consumption motivated citizens to question the legality and ethics of adding chemicals to the water supply. However, it was the association with socialism that was the most effective in thwarting attempts to fluoridate drinking water. Former Utah Governor and Salt Lake City Mayor Jay Bracken Lee saw fluoridation as a gateway to socialized medical care and feared government overreach. Opponents to fluoridation questioned the role of government scientists and their apparent readiness to experiment on the American public. Cold War paranoia stoked this anxiety, and groups such as the right wing John Birch Society threw their weight behind anti fluoridation activists. The debate over fluoridation raged through the 1960s and 70s, and in 1976, Utah voters approved the Freedom from Compulsory Fluoridation and Medication Act. This prohibited the Utah State Board of Health from adding fluoride or other medications to any public water supply. Water fluoridation is widely considered to be one of the most successful public health measures of the 20th century. It benefits everyone, but especially those who don't or can't seek regular dental care. Despite this, Utah remains one of the least fluoridated states in the nation, with only 52% of the population served by community water fluoridation. Find sources in past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.